Welcome to Finding Proof, where we discuss all things early stage VC. We're your hosts, Thanasis and Jenny of the Proof Fund, and our goal is to get to know the best seed and early stage VCs out there. Today, we're speaking with Kevin Leonard, who is a principal at Mission OG. Mission OG is a B2B-focused VC based in Philadelphia. Kevin, thanks so much for joining us today. We're really looking forward to speaking with you about Mission OG. So to start, why don't you tell us a little bit about the fund strategy? Yeah, great to be here and thanks for having me. So Mission OG, we're a venture firm based in Philadelphia. The firm was started about 10 years ago by three partners who had all been operators before. So Gene Lockhart had been the CEO of MasterCard, also ran one of the largest banks in the UK. And he's been a private equity investor for about 20 years with General Atlantic and O Capital Partners. Andy Newcomb ran a prepaid card company called eCount that sold to City and became City Prepaid. And George Crossell bootstrapped a digital media company that sold to DB Gartner. So the vision was, let's be the type of investors that we would have wanted when we were running our own companies. And I think the idea was you could have a better model for venture investing by applying that operator lens with a strong network and targeted capital. So with that, we invest in the areas that the partners knew as operators. So B2B, fintech, software, and data companies. We just had our first close on our fourth fund and made investments in 30 companies to date and have had 11 exits, including eight over the past 18 months. So it's been a pretty active past couple of years. Yeah, it sounds like it. And so do you focus on companies in the Philadelphia region or mid-Atlantic region, or what is the geographic focus for you guys? We invest all over the country and a little bit internationally. So we've made two investments in the UK, one in Mexico, and our most recent investment in Canada. But in the US, we're really agnostic in terms of geography and really just want to find the best opportunities. And some of the criteria we look for are rapid growing companies. So at least 50% year over year growth, but many companies we invest in are growing closer to triple digits and companies that are really in that acceleration stage. So they've proven their product market fit and their commercialization established and referenceable customers that we can diligence, but they need additional capital to really help accelerate that growth and value creation. And that's where we come in and we think that that entry point helps to de-risk our investment in the company, but while providing a lot of the additional upside that we would still want to see in the investment. Kevin, can you talk to us a little more about the strategy? What type of companies are you thesis driven? How do you pick the areas or companies to invest? We're a theme-based investor and we're constantly evolving and tweaking our themes based on what the partners do as operators, but also just with market feedback. We have a really well-established team of advisors to Mission OG, about 30 right now, that we help to just tweak our themes and constantly evolve them. So within the areas of the B2B fintech software data, we focus on those spaces and have themes within each of those categories that we really invest against and look to find compelling opportunities in. Can you give us an example of some themes that you're currently looking at? Yeah, sure. So one theme I think that we've invested against is the continual evolution of payments from paper-based and manual processes to digital and electronic forms. So this is something that COVID has really accelerated over the past couple of years, as I think we're all aware. But as we're B2B investors, the consumer space has really adopted and accelerated their electronic payment acceptance much quicker than businesses have. So there's still a significant opportunity for businesses to really embrace some of these technologies, although that's sped up over the past year, there's still a lot of room to grow. And that's something we look at. Another space is opportunities for unbanked and underbanked in the U.S. And I think by some accounts, that population makes up about 20% of the total population. 
And I think that's something where there's newer solutions that I think are targeting this demographic, but there's still significant opportunity to define financial services and areas for inclusion for these groups. And then security compliance is another space. We've invested again in several opportunities. And we think that just the increasing level of regulatory and fraud and cyber risk to companies is not going away. It's just really getting exacerbated, I think, now. And so that's a theme that we've invested against as well. And I think all the themes that we have, we view them as long-term problems that are accelerating. And so we think any investment in the space is really addressing these long-term problems with solutions that are really, really unique. Right. Do you want to talk maybe about one or two portfolio companies that fit in either those themes or others? One is a company called Clip. That's our company in Mexico. And Clip is the largest merchant acquirer now in Mexico and is really a digital payment acceptance solution for small and medium-sized merchants. So like what Square does in the US and elsewhere, Clip is doing this in Mexico. And in Mexico, they are where the US was in this cash to digital conversion cycle probably 20 or 30 years ago. So in Mexico, there's maybe 11 million businesses and only 1 million of those accept credit card today. So the Clip Play, I think, is a broader ecosystem for financial services for these SMBs that really have not been served in the way that they could be. And it's starting with the merchant acquirer, but there's also other financial services that they'll look to expand to. So I think it speaks to that underrepresentation and democratization of financial services for this cohort. We originally invested in Clip in 2016. They just raised a $250 million round led by SoftBank and Viking. And they're now the first payment unicorn in Mexico. That's really exciting. Yeah. And you had mentioned your network of advisors. Can you talk about how that's utilized? It sounds like it plays a role in helping to distinguish certain themes, but do they also work with the portfolio companies or how do you work with that network? Yeah, I think it varies. We have an operating partner who's great that's been inserted into a few of our companies on the board level and has helped to steer some of those to really successful outcomes. But I think the broad majority is just a lot of individuals that have the domain expertise and industry expertise that the partners had as operators as well. And I think this is really crucial for sourcing opportunities. So nine of our 30 investments have been sourced through our advisor network, but not only helping to source, but to diligence opportunities. These are individuals that are potential buyers of these, these solutions that we're looking at and can really help us to pressure test the value assumptions and thesis that these companies are coming with us to. And then I think post-investment helping to support these companies. However, these are individuals that can help to make BD introductions or talent intros and also help us to get to our ultimate outcome by making intros to the potential strategic or financial buyer of the solutions. So 30 companies over three or four funds, right? That sounds like a high conviction, concentrated strategy. Yes. What stage do you guys usually get involved in as a first check? We invest about three to five companies a year, and we see probably four to 500. So certainly we are high conviction. There's a high bar for investment from us. I would say generally our sweet spot is companies doing about two to 10 million in ARR. We're a bit multi-stage and we've gone a bit later for opportunities in areas that we really know well and that are still growing really rapidly and have strong return metrics and upside. But I would say Series B, Series C, maybe late Series A has become our sweet spot. Our check size right now is about 8 to $12 million per investment over the life of the investment. So we'll always make an investment and then reserve capital for follow-on. But initial check has been anywhere from probably 2 to $7 million right now. And tell us a little bit about your background and how you got into venture. 
Yeah. So I started my career in banking with Wells Fargo, working with some of the country's largest financial public companies. And I decided to get my MBA and I always had this entrepreneurial itch, I guess. And I decided to pursue that after my MBA. So I really was excited about the opportunity to help grow companies, work with founders, and really help to guide and support great outcomes for growing, scaling companies. And I think the opportunity with Mission OG, and I was introduced through a mutual connection, was really unique. So I've been with Mission OG for five years now. And when I joined, we were about halfway deployed through our initial fund. It was an opportunity to be an investor, to help support the companies in the way that interested me but also to join a company that was in some ways a startup itself. It was a big vision. I think that the partners laid out for what this platform could become in a scalable way and how they saw the evolution of the firm unfolding. And honestly, it's unfolded pretty much on par with exactly what they laid out to me, which is pretty amazing. But I think there was a big vision for what this could be. And they wanted someone to join to help build out the investment team, to help establish and refine some of the structure around our diligence and deal prosecution and theme research. And so that's what I was able to join and do. And it's been a great ride over the last five years. What are some of the things that you have learned? And what are some of the things that you were surprised by during your career so far in venture? Some of the things I've learned, well, very different from the banking world. So joining Mission Energy at the stage was very different from Wells Fargo, which is a 300,000 person company. But I think I've learned a lot. And honestly, a lot of my perspective on investing and how I want to work with portfolio companies and really support them is informed by the partners that I'm working with. And I think that they have a really great partner-driven perspective on how to work with companies. And I think that's informed by this operator lens and knowing what it's like to sit over the, on the other side of the table. I think empathy is a big part of this business and understanding what the entrepreneurs we're talking with and working with are going through. But it's been a great ride. And I think there's always evolution in themes we pursue and the ways we do it in companies. And we're always just looking to get better. Best cheesesteak in Philly. Go. Jim's on South Street is my that's favorite. Good, I yeah, think the, the go-to that a lot of people like is Pass and Gino's. But for me, it's Jim. Yeah. What's your favorite? I mean, I, I'm kind of a Gino person. Yeah, they're all they're all good. Those are the two best and the two notorious dueling cheese. I feel like an outsider in this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> Got to come to Philly. It's funny. Outside of Philadelphia, I don't know what it is, but they cannot figure out this seemingly simple formula for a cheesesteak. I went to school with Georgetown and there was a restaurant on M Street called Philadelphia Cheesesteak Factory. And it was just some of the... <laughs> Some of the worst cheesesteaks you could imagine. About right. But I think anyone in DC is thinking that this is the real deal and this is what it'll like. I think the bread is a big part of it. I've had Philly cheesesteak in Philly and it, I can say that it definitely tastes better. That's for sure. Yeah. There's something in the water here or, or expertise or something. I don't know. But outside of Philly, it's, they can't match it. Speaking of that, what's the reason behind the location of Philadelphia? Two of the partners were from here. So Andy and George are from the Philadelphia area. Their network was here. Gene, his headquarters is in Charlottesville, Virginia. And I didn't mention this earlier, but we just had another member join the GP, a guy by the name of Rob Metzger. He ran tech banking at William Blair for a number of years and was a partner there. He's been an advisor with us for the past five years. So just moved over to the GP side with our new fund. He's based in Chicago. But the core network was here and Andy and George built their businesses here. And I think it was a realization too, that with how mobile capital is now, we did not need to be physically co-located near all the deals we would be doing. So we've invested in Philly, haven't made an investment here in about six years. It would make our lives a lot easier if there was an investment where we could just 
walk down the street and see our portfolio company. But I think it hasn't been a barrier to us investing wherever we see great opportunities. And that's really been spread throughout the US and internationally, as I've mentioned. Obviously, you're traveling a lot normally, right? Because you're seeing a lot of companies nationwide and all that. So how did you adapt to searching for companies during COVID? It definitely was a bit of a change, I think, as everyone dealt with. And the first few months of COVID were just looking inward at your portfolio and making sure companies had enough cash on the balance sheet, doing some internal financing rounds where needed, helping companies work through the somewhat confusing PPP process and navigate that. But I think once the dust had settled, I think we, at least in terms of our portfolio, we're pretty fortunate that the spaces we invest in, our companies were really came out of things pretty good out of that first few months. But in terms of finding new deals, I think it was a lot of the ways we've always done things, just things moved to Zoom and maybe what would take one or two in-person meetings during a diligence session would end up being five to 10 Zoom sessions for an hour, an hour and a half. So things were a little bit broken up, but I think in some ways it's refreshing though, because I think as we all grew accustomed to using the technology and comfortable interacting with companies in this format, you got to meet companies face-to-face -face a lot sooner than maybe you would have otherwise. And I think in some ways it helped to accelerate our process with some companies because you got that face-to-face -face time and time with the management team that's so crucial earlier on in the process. And do you think that you guys will end up continuing that or when hopefully COVID lifts a little bit. Do you think you guys will go back to pre-COVID ways? I think Zoom has been great. I think we'll continue to do it for a lot of our intro meetings. I think when things are safe to do so, I think if we're really deep in discovery or diligence or not on an opportunity, I think we'll still want to just sit across the table from these management teams and founders and share a meal with them and really just get to know them face-to-face. -face. And I think there's just some things that are lost over Zoom in some cases that you can just accelerate that recognition with companies and individuals in person. So I think whenever we hit that period where it's okay to, to do that again, at some point in our diligence process, we'll still want to meet companies face-to-face. -face. And are you guys doing any face-to-face -face meetings currently? I think there's maybe been a few sporadic ones, but for the most part, we're still doing Zoom for most of our meetings. So in terms of what you guys are looking for, if you were describing your sweet spot and some entrepreneur was listening, when should they absolutely call you? Describe the ideal candidate investment company for you. Again, boils down to within the broader context of B2B fintech software data companies in that acceleration stage of growth for companies. And really what that means is, as I said, growing at least 50%, but for rapid growers, management teams with unique expertise in the markets that they're working in and the problem that they're trying to address and addressing a large addressable market as well. Also, we want to see just capital efficient business models and ones that are really just ready to accelerate growth with the smart capital that we bring to the table. What are your thoughts about the state of the market right now? I mean, it's obviously booming. Venture dollars have been an almost all-time high. Where are we going from here? Are you bullish going forward about where we are? Do you think that there will be some kind of day of reckoning given some of the valuations that we're seeing? What is your guys' opinion? Yeah, it's certainly a very interesting time right now to be in the venture space. Firms are raising significantly larger funds than before, and because of that, writing much larger checks at higher valuations into companies. So I think that there's definitely some froth you're seeing, especially in the public markets and some later stage companies. Our view is, and certainly, as I mentioned, we've sold eight companies or have eight realizations over the past 18 months. So where there's an opportunity to have a realization at a premium valuation, we'll certainly look to take advantage of that. I think our view is that we're raising funds with a 10-year mindset. 
And we're going to have to manage through some down and sideways economic environments. So I think we want to invest in the right companies with the right structure and really hold the line on valuation. But companies that are growing rapidly enough and addressing long-term secular problems where the cycle you're investing in is less relevant. And I think even if the valuation premium is a little bit more than what you saw a few years ago, I think we're investing in companies that will grow into that and still be successful outcomes for the fund because they're really tackling a problem that's not going away. And it's not a shiny solution now. It's something that has long-term sustainable value. And so what advice would you give to founders that are looking to start a company right now within your respective sector focuses? I think some things would be just to really make sure you're understanding the problem you're tackling. And I think the more work you can do to diligence on the potential buyers of that solution and really who would be using that in the enterprises you would be selling into before you go down that path, I think is really crucial. As I mentioned, we invest in companies where product market fit has been established. So we won't invest in a company that's pre-commercialization that really doesn't have those customers where there's really cycles of customer acquisition and retention and upsell that we can diligence. So I think the more work you can do to know your buyer and know your market and know the problem that you're solving is really critical. And what certain qualities or characteristics are most important to you when you're looking at a management team? What are you looking for? Yeah, I think really the CEOs and founders that have lived the problem that they're solving before in industry, they've maybe run companies or worked at companies where they dealt firsthand with the issue that they're looking to solve. I think the stage we invest in, we acknowledge that the full management team will not be fully established, but we really like to see the core pieces that will help to scale the business be in place. And I think we've learned that the more cycles you can get with these management teams and really get to know them on a personal level and what motivates them and how they work together, I think is really crucial to ensure the success of backing a company like that. I think CEOs and founding teams that have a sense of being able to look in and self-awareness of where their strengths are and maybe where they could use some improvement and are able to build teams that are really complementary to their skill sets, I think is huge. So that's one thing we really look to assess in the diligence process. At this point, we're going to switch to our standard questions in an attempt to get to know you better, Kevin. So the first question is our NVCA question. The National Venture Capital Association advocates for public policy that supports the venture community and American entrepreneurial ecosystem. If there's one thing that you would change about the venture capital industry or one policy you would advocate for, what would it be? I think one thing that I would change, and I think it's something that there's increasing awareness around this, but I think it's just diversity both in terms of those at investors on the investing side, but also the companies that are getting funded. And I think there's been a lot of strides, I think, made and some improvement here over the past couple of years, especially, but I think there's just a long way to go. And I think finding ways to involve more underrepresented classes, minorities, and women, again, on the investing side and on the company building side, I think is really crucial. In Mission OG, fortunately, 40% of the CEOs or founders that were of our companies are from underrepresented classes. And I think we're proud to say that that's a statistic we can hold up there. But I think we and everyone else in the industry, I think there's just more work to go to expand the diversity of the entrepreneurial ecosystem and venture ecosystem in general. Great. If you were not a VC investor and money was not a concern, what career would you have? Oh, I'm not quite sure how I would have a career or make any money doing this, but I love traveling. And my wife and I, pre-COVID and before having our son, were avid travelers. I don't know if I would be a tour guide or write a guidebook or something, but just finding some way to travel as much as possible and visit 
as many places in the world as we can. And I've been to over 20 countries and would love to just keep expanding that. Give us your top three places you've been to date. Well, Greece. One has to be Greece. Greece because it, it's an I, I do have to say <laughs> that. We went, we went to Greece, Santorini, Mulos, and, and Athens on our honeymoon and absolutely love that and would Excellent. love to go back to Greece. But also took trips throughout Asia. And I, probably the most memorable was going to Peru and staying at the entrance of Machu Picchu. That was really an amazing trip. And also went to Nicaragua a few years ago, and that was also incredible. So lots of more places on the bucket list that I'm not sure when we'll be able to get to those, but would love to find some time to do that. What's your craziest travel story? Craziest travel story. I don't know. There's. I know I put you on the spot. Yeah. I'm not sure if I have a great answer for that ready, but throughout all the hours of callous travel, there's certainly been some notable things, but nothing's coming to mind right now. Question number three, who is someone you look up to and why? I guess I'll give two sort of answers for this. And the first would be my mom, who is her 70th birthday is today. So happy birthday to my, to my mother. So I'd be remiss in not listing her as one of my influences and my mom was a teacher and I think taught me a lot about the world and empathy and hard work and how to work with others. And I think she's a role model for me today and I think has shaped me into the type of person I am today and how I approach both my personal and professional world. And I think the other thing I would say is just, and I sort of alluded to this earlier, but all the entrepreneurs we talk to on a daily basis. And I think these individuals put their blood, sweat, and tears into the businesses that they're creating and Oftentimes they're taking big risks in what they're building and that's their life. And I think when you see four to 500 companies a year and you talk to a chunk of those, I think it's sometimes easy to forget how important the topic you're talking to with these companies, it really is. And I think empathy for those founders and acknowledgement of that is really important. So certainly respect that. And that's really important. And question number four is what is the best piece of advice you've ever received? Yeah, I'm not sure where I heard this or who told me this, but I think at an earlier stage of my career, some guidance on really just establishing a point of view in your professional world and really trying to make your voice known and show value in whatever the situation is, whether it's a meeting you're in or a project you're working on or just some other team environment or elsewhere. I think especially earlier on, it's easy to just be a passive participant in some of these things. But I think the more you can establish your voice and your thoughts on certain topics and really voice your opinion and viewpoint, I think helps you to start getting that muscle memory of thinking like a manager or an owner of a business. And I think that that really has been a big piece of being an investor for me. And I think the earlier you can start to practice that, it, for some, it comes more naturally than others. But the more you can get that pattern recognition and repetition down at an earlier stage, I think makes you a valuable employee and it helps you to accelerate your career growth. That's great advice. Well, Kevin, thanks so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. We look forward to the next one. Thanks so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. And follow us on Twitter at ProofVC or on our website at proof.vc.